real, real conversation. conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. All right, welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Nathan Romus. And today we are continuing our episodes in the series on service as we come up to Remembrance Day. These are a number of podcasts with current police or law enforcement partners who have served in the military. Uh, the focus is on service and kind of what that means and why it's important. This is in addition to talking with the guests about their experiences in training and deployments, the memories they have, the people they've interacted with, and the impacts of service. So today we have Daniel High in studio, and he is a current member of the Edmonton Police Service. Dan is from Burnaby, BC, who grew up in Surrey. Dan joined the Army Reserves at age 18. This was the Royal Westminster Regiment. I said that right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and he transferred to the regular forces in 2009 and became a member of the 1st Battalion, Princess Patricia's Light Infantry. Dan was deployed to Afghanistan from October 2009 to June of 2010 and uh, left the forces for policing in 2012. So welcome, Dan. Thanks for having me. So uh, maybe we'll kind of get a bit of your background since you haven't been on the podcast before. And our previous guest, he had actually done uh, a show before we did the military service one. So his background's already there. But uh, if you could kind of start us with what it was like growing up in Burnaby and Surrey and then take us through to what kind of led you to military. Sure. Yeah. So I, I was actually just born in Burnaby and then I moved shortly thereafter to my parents' house when I got out of the hospital. Um, it's funny, being in the military, I realized I'm not a good storyteller because I served with a few people that were great storytellers and uh, I prefer factual accuracy um, over uh, comedic value. So yeah, um, yeah uh, growing up in Surrey, um, it was, I think, pretty similar to Edmonton in, in a lot of ways. Um, I used to hear a lot of people give Surrey the snub and it's dirty, it's high in crime. Um, and there are a lot of things that I just didn't realize being young and ignorant and naive and uh, growing up in a bit of a sheltered environment um, that didn't really send off any alarm bells until I moved to Edmonton and became a police officer. Then I started recognizing things um, that I was dealing with that I had seen in my neighborhood growing up. And then I kind of started to realize, oh, Surrey's maybe not as pristine as I thought it was. Um, but yeah, I went to elementary school and high school, made a good group of friends, got into some of the outdoor stuff, which um, the lower mainland in general has um, almost unparalleled access to. Mm -hmm. um, snowboarding, I got a little bit into rock climbing and bouldering. Uh, mountain biking and those kinds of things uh, kind of in my teen years and uh, when I moved to Edmonton I ended up really missing those things uh, for the first couple of years um, but I've grown to to enjoy Edmonton I guess call it home now so um, Surrey police is not in your future I don't even know if it's in Surrey's future <laughs> 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 they just had that uh, the new uh, mayor the, the new mayor yeah mm -hmm. and I think that's what uh, one of the first things she said was that she's gonna 
uh, review it or get rid of it. So, so you're saying you grew up there, uh, and now being a police officer, you look back, and I have this too, where I look back and I was like, oh, I didn't realize half of this stuff was actually pretty bad. Some of the things I saw were pretty bad or dangerous. Did any of this uh, high crime or any of the stuff that you saw then have kind of a, an effect on your trajectory in life? I don't think so. Um, yeah, I, like I don't have um, a family history of any type of service, whether it be military or policing. Um, I don't know that some of those experiences really affected uh, my decision making or if it was just something um, that always was an interest to me. Um, I had a very big affinity for Remembrance Day when I was a little kid. I don't know if I just thought the <clears throat> the things on uh, the TV, the programs and stuff on Remembrance Day looked cool or if like mm-hmm. the soldiers looked cool or I don't know. There was just some affinity that drew me towards um, that line of work. Um, actually, before I applied to the military, I applied to the RCMP just as a, a young young man. Um, and uh, I didn't end up finishing the application, although I'm pretty certain I would have been deferred. Uh, I pursued the military route. And I think the big thing that drew me to the military or planted that seed would have been um, September 11th. Mm. Um, I'm pretty sure it's kind of foggy now, but I'm pretty sure we were having breakfast when the second plane hit the tower. Um, it was either that or we saw one of the towers collapse live. Like it wasn't a replay. They were just watching it. And one of those two things happened. And unfortunately, I can't remember. This is at like you're at home having at breakfast home, with yeah. family. That's right. Before I went to school. And uh, then, yeah, it was on a bit at school. And then uh, I remember going to soccer practice either that night or the next night. And that's when all the air traffic had been shut down. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember kind of having this feeling of, you know, like, I don't know if the world's ever going to be the same. Like, if I'm ever going to feel safe or how long it's going to take for me to feel safe. Well, how old would you have been around then? I uh, would have been almost 13, so 12. Okay. Because, yeah, I think I was about grade nine. I remember seeing it. Uh, we were like in a gym class. I think it was gym class and uh, the teacher kind of called everybody into a classroom. They put this on TV. And it's it's actually kind of crazy to think uh, how an event so far away can feel so close to home, especially when it's even in America, you know, whatever's happening there, especially a big event, it's going to have an impact here, whether it's 9-11, uh, George Floyd, like it, it's, it's instantly going to be coming here. You just don't know what form. Right. Or how we're going to get drawn into it. So it's kind of interesting to hear that. And um, do you think that, so that had an, a bit of an impact on you deciding, like, maybe I want to kind of look in this direction? I wouldn't say that's what started the, I'm interested in that direction. I think that planted the seed of, um, I guess, yeah. It just, I think it was the first thing that happened that kind of led me down the path because my dad, I guess I shouldn't say I don't have a history of military service. My dad was a recruit back in the 70s for maybe less than a year. I don't think he ever finished training for medical reasons. Um, but he he would always say how the military was, like the Canadian military is a joke. It was underfunded and all this and that and the other thing. So I actually grew up with this perception of the modern Canadian military being a bit of a joke. Mm. 
And then, uh, you know, obviously those feelings of like, when am I going to be safe and all that kind of stuff kind of faded into the background as we carried on with normal life, as yeah. it were. Um, those events didn't really specifically affect my life or the, um, you know, my personal safety or whatever we flew after. It was fine. We crossed the border lots because we live close to the border. It was fine. Um, but I guess the next really big moment would have been 2006. And I think that's when, if I remember correctly, that's when the Canadian mission in, in Afghanistan changed and they moved from Kabul down to uh, Kandahar. Mm-hmm. And I can remember watching on the news the um, the release of a little bit of combat footage. And because the mission changed and the, the location changed, there were more Canadian... Um, casualties like there would be more canadians dying and stuff um and that's probably what really propelled my path down um the military route because i I remember kind of trying to make this decision you know you're graduating high school and your whole life is before you and what are you going to do with it and you better be productive and then uh yeah i was trying to make these decisions and what the next phase of my life is going to look like and uh, I kind of just thought like why am I trying to make decisions that kind of seem trivial to what's going on there's a Mm -hmm. there's a bigger thing going on in the world and I just felt like I needed to be part of that or like I needed to do my part um, because other people were so that's kind of what got me focusing on the the military route that's pretty interesting you say that too because I guess at a young age to realize that I think that's hard for a lot of people, uh, especially nowadays you see people, they just want to make TikTok videos and kind of live in their own bubble. But, and you know, there's the current um, issues with recruiting, whether it's in police, uh, uh, police or military. I don't know so much about like fire or the paramedics, but um, this call to like service and what, what kind of drives people into that. I think, a lot of that is having that big picture and saying like, where do I fit in in this whole grand scheme of things? You know, in out of the whole universe, I'm really just a speck of dust and like what impact could I have? So realizing that you could have a, a, an, a real impact on something, uh, it's pretty big. I would say it's almost profound. Yeah, I... Uh... Yeah, I don't know. It just it really resonated with me. I had like this weird moment of clarity mm-hmm. um, where really nothing's ever made as much sense as that moment of time of like, what am I, what am I doing with my life? Um, fortunately for me, it was like quite a young age. Uh, you know, not in my mid thirties. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so I started pursuing that route, and I think another thing I had mentioned. Uh, you know, I grew up with the perception that the Canadian military is a bit of a joke, um, but I think seeing um, seeing that combat footage and kind of just looking more into it, I kind of began to realize that maybe our military is not as much of a joke as I had thought that it was. Um, so, I, uh, yeah, I started pursuing it, but I, I didn't want to move away from Surrey. I didn't want to move away from the lower mainland because that was right at the time that I was starting to get into um like rock climbing and I was really enjoying that. And, um, you know, I'd been snowboarding for a while and mountain biking and all that stuff. So, um, I took the, the soft route 
Uh, I joined the the Army Reserve, and uh, I think it was my first night. So that regiment um, really embraced CrossFit as um, hmm. as a way of exercise, and I had always fancied myself um, quite fit, or you know, fitter than the average person. And I'm quite a competitive person. Um, I don't really like to finish second in most things. Um, so I remember the first night we did PT and it was some modified version of the fight gone bad because, um, you know, they didn't have loads of CrossFit equipment and, you know, we were doing the sumo deadlift high pulls with the like water jerrys and box jumps on a bench. That was probably as old as that building, which I think was at least a hundred years old. Um, and I remember afterwards walking down the stairs to the basement to get changed out of my PT gear. And I almost fell down the stairs. Oh, really? <laughs> like, yeah. I, it was that hard? Yeah. I've you never just, worked out like that before. Yeah. Um, and man, for the next like three weeks, it was uncomfortable to move. It was un- <laughs> unbelievable. Um, but yeah, seeing uh, some of the people in that, that regiment or that unit that were you know, that committed to fitness and stuff just laid the foundation um, that this is something I really wanted to be a part of. Well, seeing other people at least kind of put their heart and soul into something, that might give you some drive, right? If you're just around people that don't want to be there, or they're all negative all the time or whatever it might be, or just not motivated, you're kind of going to turn into the average of all those people, right? So yeah, yeah no, that sounds interesting. The uh, uh, How long were you in the reserves for? So I joined... I want to say it was March or April or May, one of those months in 2007. Okay. And then uh, I ended up leaving officially January 6, 2009. Well, what do they have you do most of the time? So when you're uh, at, as the reserves, what's kind of your main function? And then what is it, the training or what are the requirements like? Um, to be honest, I don't really remember what the application process was like. There's, I mean, it's not... Well, I don't know. It's not the same as here. There was a few tests. Um, there was like an English language skill test. There was a spatial awareness test, which I was terrible at. Really? It's like all these geometrical shapes unfolded with different patterns on it. I, I could not figure <laughs> that out for the life of me. Um, so clearly, I'm not going to be an architect or an engineer, um, but I'm okay with that. Um, and then, yeah, you... I don't know. If, there was no interview or a very short interview it wasn't like a bdi or or not a bdi but the yeah there's no bdi or anything like that it's they just ask you a few questions which i can't really remember but um yeah then i got the sort of call i think call basically yeah this regiment show up here on this day this will be your first day i got sworn in um the requirements i think to be in the infantry um are pretty low yeah, <laughs> there's not i mean it's not rocket science um, you know, point a gun this direction, pull the trigger, and it goes bang. Did they have you doing all that in the reserves? Or were you doing firearm training? Oh, yeah. 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 So um, the primary reserves main goal or objective is to provide operational support or supplementation to the regular force on deployments mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. Um, so you do all the things that the reg force um, would do. Just it's hard to you don't go on like a month long or three week long exercise because the minimum commitment for the reserve is one, one weeknight a month. Oh, okay. um, but if you parade 
every, it's once a week. The schedule is once a week with a one weekend exercise in a month. So on those weekend exercises, you would do like range days. Um, so you'd get your, they call it a PWT, but it's the same as our qual. Um, so you get qualified on your weapons and then you have different statuses. Um, so if a deployment comes up and you've done all your tra- your training, you would show as a green status. Mm-hmm. So you could go do like apply to be part of that operation or deployment really? without having to do any extra training to get yourself up to the acceptable level. And then there were, um, you know, other statuses. Um, but basically if you kept up with the training and you went to all the exercises, you should be in that green status. So this is your 16, 17 when you're doing this? Uh, I was 17, 18, 17, 17, 18. 18. Yeah. And are there ranks in there? I think there. Yeah, there are. Yeah. So yeah. I, uh, I joined as a non-commissioned officer or a non-commissioned member officer, whatever it is. So I started out at uh, the very bottom mm-hmm. uh, of the rank of private. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What would you end at? Uh, I ended up corporal when I, when I left in 2012. So does your rank in the reserves have any impact or bearing on when you get into the reg force? Uh, no, the biggest thing was training, um, my level of training. So I signed up in, yeah, I think it must've been March, um, and in 2007, and then I got my basic done as a reservist in Chilliwack. Um, it's the same, uh, training center that the Mounties use, the Pacific Regional Training Center. It used to be an old engineer base in the nineties, okay. yeah, um, yeah. but now the Mounties use it for training and stuff. Um, so I did my basic military qualification. I think it was like five weeks um, that summer. And then I did my soldier qualification right after that. There was, a, I think, a week off in between. And so I spent the whole summer training out in Chilliwack. And just to put it into perspective, um, the Reg Force BMQ, basic military qualification, is, I don't know, like three months, I think. Substantially mm-hmm. longer <laughs> than yeah, the yeah. time that I spent in Chilliwack. So you didn't have to do that because you came in with some prior experience. Yes. So in order for, in the infantry, and I think it's the the case around most, if not all trades, in order to be trades qualified, you do your basic military qualification and then you do your trades course. So I had, because I was a reservist, they broke it down and added soldier qualification, the SQ portion, which I think is incorporated in the BMQ in the rake force. Okay. Um, so I did BMQ and then SQ and I still had to do my infantry course. So that uh, October of 2007, I got an opportunity to do my trades course with um, a reg force unit in Meaford, Ontario. So um, with like the central area regiment, so the yeah. Royal Canadian Regiment. So I spent four months there. Um, and again, to put it into perspective, uh, uh, reserve BIQ, basic infantry qualification, um, is four weeks. Okay. So, yeah. So I did that in Meaford. I was there for four months. And then that basically qualifies you um, um, to be part of a unit. Like before you have all that stuff, yeah. you're, you're kind of off to the side doing your non-qualified soldier stuff, mm-hmm. um, learning some of the same stuff, but um, you're not part of a platoon. And so then, they won't deploy you no, or nothing. There not without okay. that basic yeah. trades course. Um, and then once you um, get that, you come back and you're part of like a platoon. You get assigned a platoon and a section and stuff like that. So, so to go back a little bit, um, 
what was it like for your family? So you, you tell them you're going to go to, you know, I guess you're already kind of doing the pre soldiering stuff. You're with the reserves. So they kind of already think you were going that direction. Like you know, you're going to end up in the military or where, when you said, Oh, I'm going to actually apply to the reg force. Was it like, no, please don't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I think, uh, I don't have the, the most open or back and forth relationship with my parents. Um, so I think I had actually looked into when I made the transfer to the Rake Force, I had looked into everything. I think I had signed everything and I just told them one day, I'm like, oh, by the way, I signed up to do this and I'm moving to Edmonton in like two or three months, whatever the time frame was. You were set. You yeah. knew exactly what you were doing and you wanted yeah. to go. <laughs> yeah. So because I had that... Um, regular force infantry course in Meaford. Um, when I applied to the Reich force, um, everything transferred over without having to redo any sort of um, training. And sometimes what happens is if you do all three reserve courses, sometimes they won't credit you your trades qualification because it's just the time is so much shorter, so much less than the reg force course. Okay. Um, that they'll be like, ah, no, you got to go back and redo your BIQ in Wainwright or whatever. So, um, especially if you're brand new and you haven't done anything, if you have a couple of years of experience, uh, they might accept your your um, training straight over. So for me to transfer to the reg force um, was pretty easy, pretty seamless. I showed up to battalion um, not having to redo anything, being quite proficient <laughs> in yeah. these in these skills. So, and yeah, I, I wanted the first battalion because they were the next battle group tour to come up. So it, it rotates, um, Western area, central area, Quebec, Western area, central area, Quebec. So, um, when I had applied to the military for a component transfer from the reserves to the regular force, they tried to send me to Shiloh and they had just come back or not. I don't, I can't remember if they just came back, but they weren't slated to go mm. next. Um, so that was the only time I ever had power in my military career. I said, no, I won't sign this unless it's the first battalion. So, um, so they came back and like, oh, sure, I guess they have room. And so I signed it. And then I always find that interesting. So you hear a lot of, uh, I listen to a lot of military related podcasts and you get a lot of guys that say, you know, um, I get to wherever I'm going and I want to kind of get into it now. And they say that to the recruiters or staffing or whatever the unit might be. And uh, sometimes they say no, and it's like, you think they would be kind of chomping at it to send whoever they can, especially if you have someone who's motivated to go. Um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's all that different from here. And, you know, you come out of rec recruit class, you really want to go to a division, but they only have so many spots in that division and the other places need more people. I think it's kind of... <clears throat> A little bit of how it works, but I didn't. I didn't want to go to Shiloh. I didn't want to go to anywhere else because Edmonton was the closest to home, and Edmonton was the biggest city. Mm -hmm. um, the other postings are like kind of in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So <laughs> at least um, outside of Quebec, Shiloh has uh, a military museum. You could go look at that. Yeah. I don't know what else they have out there. I've yeah, been out there once. Yeah, I've never <laughs> been. Thankfully. <laughs> um. So. When you joined, you're 18. What do you think made you so uh, set on like going and doing this? Did you consider any other, like you said you applied RCMP, but did you consider any other job paths, schooling, anything further? Or was it just kind of 
let's go into this. And then kind of, if you can explain why. Um, yeah, I, like I went to university out of high school, but I, I kind of already made that decision. Like this is my focus until it's either possible or not. Um, so I, I kind of just used university as a time killer. And I, I had done a concrete work as a high school student over like mm. three or four summers. And I, I thought initially that's kind of where I would land up or end up, sorry. Um, I really liked the work. Mm. But then when I, when I turned like 19 and I realized like it's great for a summer job, it's great to work your bag off for a couple months in the, in the heat, but I don't know if I want to do this for, you know, all day, every day. But then you go to the military and you get deployed to the Middle East. <laughs> so now you're carrying a ton of gear in the heat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I just, I felt really strongly that this is something that, like I said, um, other people are doing it. It seems, um, it seems like the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of times with geopolitical events, it can, at least I've realized this now with hindsight and age and if I dare call it wisdom, um, some of them, they aren't so black and white. Yeah. You know, um, some of them are really gray and, and even trying to figure out how I feel about um, these events is not clear to me. Um, but this seemed really clear. Um, and I'm not going to talk about Iraq. I know that was going on concurrently and that's, Again, that's a different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I don't know where that falls on the the black and white scale, um, but Afghanistan seemed really clear. There's people there that carried out, um, you know, um, the attacks on at the World Trade Centers on September 11th. That that was wrong, mm-hmm. um, and this just seemed like the logical thing to do to. Um, um, I don't know, like me contributing to making Canada my home, like yeah. me doing something, giving back to the country. I really felt like I needed to give back to the place that had given me so much and continues to give us so much. Do you think uh, at the time that you were getting in, was that kind of the main motivation from other people you talked to that were getting in at the same time or kind of in there around the same uh, years? Uh you know, I think among some of the younger people, it was, um, there was quite a range. And again, now being a police officer, I realized some of the people I worked with were kind of dirtbags. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of different motivations there. Some of the motivation was that giving back. Some of it was maybe personal challenge. I know there's a lot of people from the East coast and employment opportunities aren't plentiful on the East coast. Mm-hmm. Um, and really the army can be an easy paycheck if you can just shut your brain off and deal with the pain or the the stress or whatever. If you can just kind of go, um, I say as like any job. I mean, there's always a a back office job that you can do the minimum amount and c- contribute. Yeah, <laughs> get your paycheck. But the military certainly supplies. You know, there's a an education component. There's a lot of skills, hard skills, right? Um, and maybe even a lot of the soft skills, like learning how to be a leader, working on emotional intelligence, a lot of those things come from it. But it's it's you'll get what you know you get what you put into it, mm-hmm. so you get that back. Well, so when you were 
now you're transitioning to the reg force. So what does that kind of look like when you're, um, you, you put in, you said you just applied, you filled out all the paperwork and stuff. So where does it go from there? Um, so I got, if I'm remembering correctly, I got a, a job offer, which was, I think an email back and forth with, uh, the recruiter. And, uh, so I accepted the job offer and then I got a posting date and some posting information. And it was actually, normally you would show up at battalion with a course of other soldiers from these training centers. And you had, you, I mean, all that administration would be done for you, or at least you'd be showing up with a big group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I showed up by myself. I got some like minimal instructions on basically be here at this time. And uh, I was living in the shacks like I had applied to live on the base at first because I thought that would be an easy transition. And I didn't know anybody in Edmonton. Okay, so I was going to say, this is in Edmonton, so you're up on the garrison. Uh, garrison. That's right, yeah. And I didn't know anybody in Edmonton except uh, one guy who I was on that course with in Meaford. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, when I showed up, yeah, I, I don't even remember how I got the room. I think it was pretty, like pretty sketchy. I just showed up to the, the, the building that's responsible for housing on a Saturday or a Sunday or something like that. Um, yeah. And they, I got a key and I moved in and, uh, yeah, I showed up on the Monday. I went to the orderly room. Um, I'm like, Hey, I'm here. Here's my paperwork. Because nor like again, normally everybody's expecting a course of people, so it's yeah. it's really easy. And yeah, they didn't have any idea <laughs> of like that I was coming or anything like that. And they had to look over the paperwork and figure out where I was going to go. Yeah, I feel like you're gonna, you're going to get to a point in your story where you're like walking to a gymnasium. There's 500 people all lined up, and they know what they're doing, and you're just like. Here I am. <laughs> well, they told me to go to B Company and a platoon. And I think um, that's kind of how I felt. I showed up and they were doing PT. And so at my old uh, reserve regiment, if you didn't bring your PT gear, you just worked out in your combats and your combat boots. Because oh. like you messed up. You should have brought that. You, we do it all the time, right? Yeah. So uh, you should know better. And they were getting ready for PT and I'm in my combats because I have no idea what's going on. So I was like, uh, I just started stretching and the, the platoon warrant was like, take a chill pill, man. Just go get a coffee or something like that. Like, just, just relax. But I was like, uh, I gotta, I don't even know what I'm doing here. <laughs> so what, what does uh training kind of entail? So you're in the, this is the basic, like what a, a I'll say a basic soldier would kind of go through now. Yeah. So this is like, um, I've been posted to a unit now, so I'm fully trained. I'm no longer in the training system. Um, so you get posted to, yeah, you get posted to a battalion. And then within that battalion, you get assigned to a company and a platoon within that company and then a section within that platoon. Um, so I was assigned to B Company, which had just got back from a provincial reconstruction team tour. Um, so they that company wasn't slated to go um, in October of 2009. So I was kind of bummed about that. But um, basically the daily... The daily life was PT at around eight till ten, shower, and then I don't know, do if they had like not like a seminar, but like classes if they wanted to run people through on weapons drills or um, you know, clean up this, do that. Um, it wasn't always make work projects, but it kind of felt like that sometimes. 
can they, so some people live on base, some don't. Can they make you do more stuff if you live on base? Is there jobs for you to keep doing or is it like four o'clock, everyone's kind of gone home? Uh, no, it's it's more like four o'clock and everybody's gone home or okay. whatever. Yeah, whatever time. The only other thing you had to do by living on base and you only had to do it once was a, like a room inspection. I guess just to make sure you weren't trashing the place. Um, <laughs> which a room inspection in the shacks was way different than on a course. Like mm. on a course, everything has to be, you know, there can't be a speck of dust here. There can't be a fingerprint there. Everything has to be lined out. They basically just, as long as your bed was made and you didn't have anything you weren't supposed to in your room, um, they didn't care. So my equivalent would be to compare it to the Mounties. So going through depot, so living there for several months and everything was at any time you were fair game for the corporals to come in and just tear your shit up. <laughs> and they, I remember uh, they would, uh, they came in and I, I'm positive we had everything squared away and they just made things up just for the sake of ruining your day. But I remember we came in one day, there were mattresses in the showers. They threw the mattresses in the showers. Um, some people, well, and I don't remember which time exactly, but because there were several inspections, but I remember one, they, uh, people, might have been right when we first got our actual service pistol pistols issued to us. And some people didn't lock it up properly and the box bolted to the floor. And uh, we walk in from you know, the day of training and when we get back, they had all the handcuffs kind of from these pipes. And we stayed in trailers at this time. They didn't have the new barracks built. So we were just in a million trailers and uh, they had handcuffs chained to the water pipes in the ceiling of the trailer. And they had like three or four guns just hanging from there, pointing at the door. Awesome. <laughs> so you know what it's like to walk in the door and have a gun pointed at you. Um, but yeah, I, I could imagine if you actually live there and you're going to live there for some period of time, they're not going to mess with you. That's your home. They let you have your home. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, but on a course though. It's um, Fair game. It's very similar to what you described, or at least it can be, especially at the beginning. Um, there's actually a that reminds me of something that happened to me in my basic when I was in the reserves. They, um, yeah, they tore our rooms apart. I have a picture of it somewhere, and there was like stuff everywhere. Like mm -hmm. I have no idea. I I still lost stuff from that. Like I have no idea where it was, but just stuff everywhere. Because one guy lost his room key. Oh yeah. <laughs> so we were outside standing with our arms straight out, holding our room key at attention for like, I don't know, half an hour or something like that mm -hmm. in the blazing hot sun. And then we go back into our rooms and our rooms are just destroyed. <laughs> you have 10 minutes yeah. to clean up your room. Be yeah. back outside. Oh my word. Oh, there's a million stories like that. It's, you know what, in, in looking back on that, it's like maybe some people think it kind of sucks in the moment. But when you look back, you have all these kind of cool experiences and stories to share with people. Uh, and not everybody gets to go through that. And, and I say gets to go through because I think people should seek out, you know, those kind of call them once in a lifetime experiences. Um, unless you like break a leg and you go through training for a second or third time, yeah. <laughs> that could be quite a bit of a stretch. But, uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, that's kind of missing from nowadays. Uh, and even within the police service, our training has changed so much where it's becoming more of the adult learning. So it's just like going to school, right? Like going for the most part, not everything, but um, it's toned down a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And I think you kind of see maybe the camaraderie is not there anymore the way it used to be. People aren't as tight-knit 
and misery loves company, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, no, it's, I like how you kind of say like they, it's it's similar to going through depot and how they treat you there. But uh, so, where do you go from there? So you're kind of in your first area, your first assigned area. Um, you haven't been deployed yet, but when does that kind of come? Uh, that comes in October of the same year. So it's like January, February, March. And uh, really all that you could do was perform well where you are because they, me being again new and not knowing how the system works, I'm sure there's always room for people on deployments. Yeah. Um, so they just said like, yeah, there might be spots. Like we'll pick the, you know, the people that are performing well or whatever. So I honestly can't even remember what we did. We did a lot of PT. We did a lot of, it must have been like menial tasks because I don't really remember what I did in B Company well, before I got If they're going to send you to the Middle East, like uh, I know they have the the village out there now and you kind of do some training and it's, you know, they've colored it the way it might look uh, uh, where you're going. But did they have all that at the time you went through? Yeah, I, I'm, I think it was quite new mm -hmm. um, but they had this, the Seacan village I, I don't know what it looks like now I'm, I don't know if they've developed it past what it was that's um, the last I remember from doing like a, our public safety unit training out there right. yeah so but how do you prepare one for going to Afghanistan in the middle of Alberta I don't really have sand here um, <laughs> or dusty roads. <laughs> well we don't up here but Suffield mm. um, Suffield is quite sandy and dirty maybe not sandy but dusty yeah um, so that's where we did um, a big portion of our workup training. Um, so, yeah, so I, I I got the the call as it were on I think it was a Friday. They they're like, okay, hey, these people are going to these platoons. Um, so yeah, I got kicked out of B Company and moved over, not kicked out, but transferred over to Delta Company and uh, assigned to Twelfth Platoon, which was Delta Company was this company that they just stood up for this tour. Um, so it was like a complete mix of third battalion people that volunteered to come to the first for a tour. Um, I don't know if there were people from the second there, but it was just kind of like this sewn knit together afterthought. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I showed up there and then we went to Suffield right away. Um, and I, I really wanted to go on an exercise because I, uh, I didn't, I didn't come with this course. There were a few people that came um, to battalion on this infantry course, like just before Christmas. And then I came just after Christmas. So there were already a group of people that were new, but that knew each other and had a shared experience. And I was quite literally just this random person um, <laughs> that showed up. So I didn't have any, I didn't have like really good friends or anyone that, you know, with that shared experience or common connection. So mm -hmm. I couldn't wait to go on exercise to, to build that. Um, so that I could, you know, be part of the team as it were, have that shared experience with these people that I'm working with. Mm -hmm. Um, so we went to Suffield, I think it was three or four weeks and it must've been, it must've been in March. So I must've got transferred from B company to Delta pretty, pretty early. It must've been in March cause it was so cold, but basically you go through, um, like section live, you kind of start off in order to get that green status, you start off with um, the minimum. Um, so you pass your weapons qualification and then you do like your pairs live and then 
So like that's you and your fire team partner. So a platoon is broken down into sections. Each section is broken down into fire team partners. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do your single, then you do pairs, then you would do section live, then you would do platoon live, and then you move into company live. So these are the things that um, you do in workup training. And then there was um, specific things like how to clear vulnerable points on roadways. Um, like dismount, this is how you clear up to like culverts or areas where IDs are likely planted. Mm. Um, and then um, there was some, not a lot of cultural training at that point. There was some in the in the tour, but there wasn't a lot in that. It was just kind of moving up to villages made out of plywood, essentially. So are they, is there a person that stands there kind of, I don't know, like a, an assessor and they are grading you as an individual or is it more just, as long as nobody's making any kind of overt mistakes, you don't really get singled out for marks. Yeah, I don't know if it's, I don't know if there were marks or if it was kind of just like you met the objective, you mm-hmm. guys cleared the objective with live fire. I, to be honest, I don't know. I was I was quite a lowly private at the time. Um, <laughs> so I just kind of did what I was told. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I mean, there would have been like range safety officers to make sure everybody's pointed in the right areas and everybody stops Firing at the right time. Okay. Um, but I don't know that they're. Yeah. I think you might have had to redo something if you um, completely screwed the pooch. Yeah. Um, but I think for the most part, it was not like this guy did great and this guy did okay. It was just like you met the objective. So that's kind of early in the year. And then you don't deploy until October. So what are you kind of doing in between? Uh, so there was some more courses that I did, um, like a platoon support weapon course where you learn like, yeah, how to fire the mortar, um, how to use the, the general purpose machine gun and the sustained fire rolls. So you set it up on this big giant tripod and, um, I don't know if there's anything else on that. I can't remember now. It's been such a long time. So it's a lot of like all those months in between. They are kind of keeping your your hard skills up, right? Yeah. Is uh, have they told you like you are 100? percent You guys are going now, like you will be deployed, or is it still waiting for that official word? Uh, no, it was very much so. If you're part of these companies, you will be deployed. Um, but the timelines didn't didn't become clear until probably like September. Like mm. this is your date. Um, but as long as you were in that company, you were going. Did you tell your parents at this time? Uh, I, I can't remember when I told my parents. Yeah. Do you remember their reaction at all? Uh, no, I probably just told them on the phone um, <laughs> <laughs> because I lived here. Yeah. Um, but it, moving to Edmonton was definitely beneficial for my relationship with my parents. I feel mm-hmm. like uh, the distance made, uh, made uh, the relationship a little easier to Sometimes to that helps. Yeah. yeah. Well, so you're basically doing all these uh, courses, learning like you know, firing certain types of firearms, uh, movement in the field, tactics, uh, and you kind of mentioned it, but you called it uh, what was it, local training or, or cultural stuff? cultural training? Yeah. So, did you do any of that beforehand? They teach you like any language training, or or like, hey, here's the the customs where you're going. Try to look people in the eye. Don't look people in the eye. Like what? Whatever's happening over there. They did. Um, we had a seminar. Uh, I think it was like a two-day seminar. Um, uh, somewhere on the base doesn't matter. But um, where they had 
people come in and present like this is the language. These are the languages that you might encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, these are customs. Obviously, what's acceptable for us might not necessarily be culturally correct in that part of the world. Um, I, I, we went over some very basic language training, um, but yeah, a lot of it was obviously geared to like respecting women and like you might not think it's right that they wear the burqa, but it mm-hmm. it is what it is. And like, you know, if you go to clear a compound and there's, you know, women there, like they have to be put off in their own room because, you know, um, we can't interact with the women. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of that stuff to just make us more sensitive. Otherwise, I guess you end up making enemies of the people you're trying to make friends with. Yeah. Well, and did you guys have a lot, like at the time, were there a lot of females in your uh, battalion or or the smaller sections of it? Uh, no, I think there was one female that I can remember that was actually a Patricia. and She was an alpha company. And um, we had an engineer attached to us in our company that was a female. Um, outside of that, really, uh, the only females were the medics. And it was, okay. I can't remember what the makeup would be, but it wasn't exclusively female. It was still quite um, male, female. Or there was quite a male and female mix amongst mm. the medics. Okay. So you get to deployment. Um, can you tell us like what, what does that look like? So October comes and what happens? Yeah, so... Um, we, you get your date and then you get like pre-deployment leave. So I think it was like, I don't know, two weeks, maybe not even. I can't really remember now. Um, and you get to do whatever you want. Like, I don't know, if you're from here, spend time with your family. If you're not from here, go back, spend time with your family, friends, whatever. Um, and then, yeah, you basically, well, I guess even before that, you pack a box, a barrack box, because that barrack box is going to meet you in Afghanistan. So you pack this box that gets shipped like weeks or months before you actually leave. And then um, you get your your desert combats and then you have to soak them with this anti-mosquito or anti-bug thing um, to, to try and keep the bugs away from you. Uh, you get your anti-malarial or malaria medication. Um, and then, yeah, you basically get um, a time that you show up to the LTF and you say goodbye to whoever's there to say goodbye to you, and then you get on a bus. You did it over the phone, as uh, like everything else you've done. <laughs> yeah, there. Uh, I don't think I had some friends outside of the military at that point. I think mm-hmm. they came to say goodbye, but yeah, none of my family came, um, which is fine. <laughs> did you go see them on the pre-deployment though? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, okay. In that first year, I probably went back to Vancouver like 10 times. If I had a long weekend or like a few extra days off, I'd go back. Okay. Yeah. I spent a lot of time back in the lower mainland. Okay. Um, yeah. Then you get on a bus and you drive to that other side of the airport, mm-hmm. not the the main terminal, but yeah, um, the back door, I guess. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, we chartered a flight. It was with Air Italy. Mm-hmm. So we chartered a flight to... Cyprus. So we left, yeah, I don't know what time, 11 at night or something like that. And then we landed in Cyprus. And from there, you change from the civilian aircraft to the military transport. 
And then I don't know how long we were at Cyprus for maybe four or five hours. Um, and then you take off and then you fly from Cyprus uh, to Kandahar. So as soon as you entered, and it's like, it's a pretty relaxed flight. Um, they take the big cargo bay out and they put actually rows of seats in. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not sitting in those uncomfortable jump seats on the edge of the plane. Yeah. Um, or like on the edge of the fuselage. But uh, as soon as you enter Afghan airspace, like it's lights out, you put your helmet on um, and now you're in like a theater of war. So you have to be prepared for, you know, if your plane gets shot at, which was, I want to say a possibility, but not a probability. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, that's just uh, the operating procedure. So then we landed at Kandahar and we um, got off the plane and then the first thing you do, I, don't, I can't remember if we flew with our weapons, if we got them in Cyprus or if we got them, we must've got them in Cyprus. But the first thing you do is you go off and you test your weapon to make sure it works. Um, that it didn't get broken in the transport or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then we stayed in these trailers for a few few days maybe. And then maybe not even. And then we got helicoptered out to um, our our area of operation that uh, we were, yeah, our AO that we were responsible for. Um, so yeah, we got on these American Chinooks and headed out to a town called Belande. I feel like at every point you could, like when does it kind of hit you and you're like, wow, this is really happening? Because I feel like every point there is like, oh, we're now entering uh, this airspace, put on your helmets. Like, oh wow, like I'm, I'm into this now. There's no turning back. And then, Oh, go get your weapon right away because anything could happen at any time. You're like, oh, this is, I'm in it now. Like, Yeah, I, you know, I was really young and I was incredibly naive. Um, so I... You're and, just thinking it's cool the whole time. You're like, this is awesome. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm doing what I wanted to do. Um, and a lot of like, a lot of the military is just like, follow direction and do this. You don't really, or I didn't really think about uh, certain things like I'd done repelling. I'm terrified of heights now. Like I, I shouldn't say terrified. I, I don't enjoy heights now. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was uh, younger in the military, like repelling is like okay, I just do what they say. Like do this, and then you like you jump off the skid like this, and this is what you do with the rope. Like it, all of it was you know follow this direction, mm-hmm. um, and things always turned out. Right? I never got hurt or whatever. So. I think it's just the military mindset of like, okay, now we're doing this, now we're doing this, now we're doing this. Okay, yeah, I don't yeah. have to critically think about this because this is just the process. You do A, B, C, D, E, and F, and then you do it all in that order. Yeah, maybe when they kind of just, you know, they keep pushing you off various cliffs, so to say, <laughs> you really don't have time to dwell on it. And maybe that's part of the training. Yeah, yeah. So, so you get over there, you get to the AO, and then um, what is... What does life look like when you're over there? Um, well, so we, it's called a rip, a relief in place. So we ripped the Vendus out of Blonde. And uh, it's kind of, there's a bit of a handover. So I was in the headquarters section of the platoon I was in. So like the platoon commander, the platoon warrant are in that section. Um, the, the weapons detachment, like the weapons that for the, platoon is in there the, the signalers in there um so i being part of the hq section i got to 
um, Afghanistan just a little bit before some of the rest of our platoon. So there's a little bit of overlap between the Vendus and us. So just kind of like learning the patrol base, learning some of the towns, learning some of um, how the patrol base works, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So there was a little bit of that. And then, um, yeah, when the rest of us showed up, we just went out on patrol and like went to these towns, talked to people, got the lay of the land, that that kind of stuff. Uh, How did you find, so you're going out, um, and this is like, you're going out and it's, Everywhere is, I guess, kind of dangerous. There's a potential for danger. But where you're at right now, is it kind of like, uh, I'm guessing this is not a real hot zone. You're more of on like a a friendlier area or is it just everything outside of the base is fair game, high danger? There's definitely that potential. Um, So the area that our company specifically was responsible for, we were kind of... I guess, towards the rear. Um, so like, I guess the closest to Kandahar, I think we were like 30 or 40 kilometers outside of Kandahar, somewhere around there, maybe even a bit further um, in the, like the Dand district slash Panjway district. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had, where we were, that first place was kind of, I guess, further away from the other two patrol bases, which were further to the, the West. Um, <laughs> like how I did that north even <laughs> or never eat soggy wieners. Um, so the potential is always there though, because unlike a conventional war where you have defined front lines and defined soldiers from different sides um, in an insurgent style uh, conflict, you never really know who the enemy is mm-hmm. or who your friend is. Um, so the potential was always there, but for where we were, it was generally safer than a little bit down the road. Um, but shortly, like we were only there for maybe a month and then we moved further down the road um, to a place, I don't know, it's called A10. I don't know why. And is this like getting closer to the big city then? Like toward Kandahar? No, further away. Further and by away. like down the road, I mean like maybe two or three kilometers down the road, not very far down okay. the road. And uh, so then we moved to that um that area because the uh, the area of operations continually moved west, and like basically we provided almost like a, a beat cop kind of presence in mm. communities. We'd show up, you know, basically just be a presence. We weren't uh, there was no like huge war fighting going on. That was kind of like the the regular day to day. Is you just send a patrol out into a town chat with people, see if anything's changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were some bigger operations where we pushed further west, like as a whole um, group, mm-hmm. like a whole company or maybe even a battalion. So um, those happened, but for the most part, we were just walking around in the villages, talking to people. But how did you find the locals? Like, were they kind of receptive to you? Were people mostly standoffish or, you know, what's... What's like uh, their temperament toward you? There was quite the wide range. Um, Mm. So in that first place we were at in Belande, when we went out and uh, patrolled into the villages, like the kids loved us. They all wanted pens. I mean, who would have thought pens and paper um, so they can actually write things down and and draw things um, would have been all they wanted. Um, But yeah, they 
they really seem to interact with us and enjoy our presence. I mean, obviously, maybe the people that didn't interact with us were the people that, you know, didn't really care about us. But Mm. um, then there were also, you know, the interactions. I did some convoy stuff for resupply uh, and going to different parts along that road. Uh, Yeah, the kids would throw rocks at us and all that kind of stuff. So there's quite the range um, (laughs) between, you know, maybe a novelty or, you know, feeling generally positive towards us to like outright negativity. Yeah. Well, I mean, depending how old they are, I think a lot of it's whatever their parents are telling them, that's what they're kind of led to believe. So they either see you as a occupying force or there to help them, right? There to help liberate. Um, do you Would you say most of the mission that you were on, is it mostly humanitarian more so than... Uh, just like a, uh, being in a position for battle? There were aspects um, that maybe not humanitarian, but like focused more on like the reconstruction of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and those were those provincial reconstruction teams. So they'd provide um, support or safety to areas where there's um, those reconstruction efforts going on. Our main focus being in the battle group was like security security for for villages for um yeah basically to find the find the taliban and either get them to leave by just our presence being there or fight them on leave did you find was their presence really big in a lot of the villages you went to or did you have any confrontations with any of the the I'd say the Taliban or whatever groups were op- operating in those areas. Uh, again, that's, I think, the the challenge of an insurgent mm. conflict. You'd never really know. Um, the locals, I guess, would know because obviously they've lived in these villages their whole lives. They would know that, you know, Johnny down the street's not from here. Mm-hmm. He dresses a little bit different, talks a little bit different. He's He's probably Taliban, but whether or not they would tell us and, um, you know, was up I guess up to them and the subtleties are so different like I'm not gonna know mm-hmm. that he dresses you know a little bit different or looks a little bit different the subtleties are so small were were you ever a part of anything where uh local says hey you know there's this house or this person like the people in there we don't want them here they're not good or whatever it might be were you part of anything like trying to move people out of an area um, I don't think so. Um, again, like being a, being a private, mm-hmm. um, you know, when we're having these shuras or meetings with the locals, it's actually like the platoon commander and the section commanders, you know, sergeants, warrants, lieutenants, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm just kind of the guy standing out, looking out the outside perimeter. So, yeah. um, I don't think so. I mean, we definitely searched compounds and we found, I don't think we ever found weapons but we found explosives and stuff mm-hmm. um but they're mostly in abandoned compounds um we never mm-hmm. or at least i never fired my weapon like it wasn't like this heavy combat tour where there's lots of firefights and stuff like that um they i think they learned from earlier years like 2006 that was kind of the the rumor or the rumor or the general consensus is the first battalion went in 2006 and fought the Taliban and what was described as kind of like a Soviet era um, 
battle or like front lines. Like they, they, the the Taliban used Soviet era doctrine to try and fight mm. the Canadians, and the Canadians, you know, um, train to fight Soviet doctrine. So um, the general consensus among the people in my battalion was like we rolled them. Yeah, and they realized they can't stand and fight in a conventional or semi-conventional style of warfare. Um, so my tour was like primarily IEDs. That was the the main threat. So what's kind of your experience with the IEDs? You do a lot of like clearing, clearing roadways, clearing villages. Um, yeah, so we didn't necessarily, we didn't clear the roadways, um, but we, yeah, we'd, we'd walk through villages and we'd clear certain areas. Um, we had a civilian uh, contractor who had an explosives dog. Um, so we used him to clear areas and look for explosives. It wasn't, I don't know that we cleared a lot of areas specifically based on information or if we just, I know we did a few, I can think of one in particular, um, but I think a lot of it was just providing that presence. And if you came across something, then you dealt with it. And sometimes you'd be told like, yeah, there's, like, you gotta go over there and check that out. And then mm -hmm. the engineers we had with us, um, they had like the, the metal detectors or the, however it works, I don't know. I wasn't an engineer, but yeah, <laughs> they'd go check it out and then they'd, we'd end up blowing up whatever we found. Oh, really? Wow. Did you get to see any of those? Did you come across any big explosions or? Yeah, I got a, I got a, bunch of videos <laughs> somewhere <laughs> yeah. that I just haven't looked at um, in a long time. But yeah, I took some videos like you you put your camera kind of in a in a spot where you could see it and then you'd put like you'd just start the video and then there'd be like a countdown and then you'd hide hide behind cover sometimes like quite a ways away. Yeah. You'd go back and grab your camera after the blast. Well and a lot of the stories from uh, overseas uh, it's like you might find one bomb or one explosive of some kind, but then it's connected to like 20 more and they're just buried more underground or something. It's pretty crazy. Like some of the stuff that they actually come up with pretty creative. Yeah. And um, yeah, the, the, the secondaries or the, the tertiaries or like the daisy chain one mm. um, to go off at a certain point and then others go off behind it. Like it's, it is very creative. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was, that was the main threat for us. Um, so when you're on tour, you get what's called HLTA. So it's home leave travel assistance. I think that's what the A stands for, but you get a, basically a three week vacation. You can go do whatever you want. You could, um, go back home for free. Like the military will pay whatever cost it is to go back home or you could go do whatever you want and they would cover a portion of it. Um, like the equivalent that it would cost you to go back home, something like that. Mm. And, uh, I chose to go back home and. So I was visiting with my parents and then I was going to go to Cuba uh, with a friend of mine over that three weeks. And then uh, it was December 23rd. <laughs> my dad, I, like I woke up early. My dad was watching TV, like watching the news. He's like, oh, hey, do you know, uh, do you know a Lieutenant Nuttall? I'm like, yeah, I do. He's my platoon commander. And he's like, oh, well, he died. I'm like, what? Like it oh, didn't, really? it didn't, like it just, I couldn't comprehend. I was also, I had only been awake for like, two minutes but um yeah i had to i had to go to the computer back when you know mm. if you wanted to access the screen it was a computer not yeah. a tablet or a phone uh and i had to look it up and then I, yeah i'm like well, man that's that's him like this kind of got a little bit real mm -hmm. um so when you talk about yeah like you know at what point did you realize this was 
you know, you're in it. This is real. That was uh, definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I got back and um, again, you, you talk about like, or I had mentioned Misery Loves Company just as a, as a bit of a, um, I don't know, not a joke, but there's an element of truth in it. And um, something like that is a huge experience for everybody that was like part of it directly or indirectly. And I didn't know what people were going to, how people would accept me or if they would treat me differently because I just happened to be on vacation when it happened. Mm. Um, So going back was kind of this, for me, it was a little bit awkward. I'm like, "Ah, I don't know, like, am I going to be, like, are people just going to be upset because I wasn't there? Like, even though that's beyond my control, I kind of had some of these irrational thoughts and things ended up being fine. Obviously, people caught me back up to speed and mm-hmm. um, learned some of the details and stuff. And Well, and everybody gets that leave, right? Like, everybody gets to go. You can't really... Uh, like, I was on vacation when uh, Woodall was killed here in Edmonton. And I know some people that were working at that time. And, I mean... Things can happen. Like you get your days off, you you go on vacation, no matter where it is or what you're doing. Um, yeah, it's kind of out of your control. Yeah. So people are still out there. Uh, the public doesn't realize there's still cops protecting them at night. <laughs> yeah. So somebody's out there doing things. Yeah. So, um, what uh, what do you kind of remember about uh, like your daily life? Like, so when you're not out in the village. Uh, you know, is there Tim Hortons on base? Is there anything? Are you just, are you just trying to avoid camel spiders? I hear about these things and snakes, and I'm like, no, that's not cool. Um, yeah. So daily life, you had kind of like we had like a rotation. So there were three, um, three rifle sections and an HQ section in our platoon. Um, so there would be a section that was like the operational section that would go out and do the patrols for how whatever the period was. I can't remember if it was a day or a week or like two or three days. And then there would be a section that was kind of like off, but would be a QRF if something happened, like that section got blown up or got into a firefight in the village. Because where where we were, everything was within walking distance. Mm. So, um, and then you had a section doing like security so do, like manning your sentries and stuff because you had to have 24 hour um, security yeah. on your on your patrol base um, and then like HQ section was primarily responsible for manning the radio because someone has to sit in the radio room the whole time uh, and man the radio that is basically your only means of communication with everybody um, <clears throat> so you kind of switched between um, what responsibility you had and sometimes things changed based on different patrol bases like the the one patrol base we ended up at for two or three months um we had fresh meals in the evening we had one fresh meal a day and and by fresh i mean like it was cooked Mm -hmm. um and that was a section's responsibility like you're cooking dinner tonight or or for these many days and uh but then it changed when we moved to the place we ended up at for the last three months or so. Um, 
there was no fresh food. <laughs> really? Um, so we ate rations. So there was no like responsibility for cooking or anything. That place was actually super austere. Like it was very Spartan. We didn't, we had a generator for like, you could put on for like two or three hours a day. Like it was quite Spartan. <laughs> that last place we ended up at. I just imagine half the time, like there's no, well, you can't, you can't really leave the base. No. <laughs> so you're just stuck in these walls and then, um, it'd be like being stuck in a neighborhood, right? Like just throw up some walls around it and then there's no movie theater, there's no shopping, there's nothing, there's no going to the restaurant. Like, so it's just, just is it, um, what's the movie there? Jarhead? Yeah. You just kind of seems like they're going insane and they're like, I'm bored. And <laughs> yeah. Why am I here till the very end? Uh, there was a lot. That's probably the most accurate, uh, movie that I've seen in terms of like what a deployment's actually like. Yeah. Um, so you had mentioned camel spiders. We actually used to catch camel spiders and then put them in these containers with each other and watch them fight. Like that was, <laughs> that was a form of entertainment. Um, I brought a lot of books, read a lot of books. Um, again, like the other patrol base we were at where we had the fresh meals, there was, uh, electricity. Mm. So like all the time, they had a huge diesel generator that was running. So like people had laptops and, you know, people would game or do whatever. Um, but oh, then, really? yeah. But when we moved to this more Spartan base, there was like none of that. So that's when, yeah, you read or you worked out and this place didn't even have walls. We were on, we were on top of this hill um, in this school, basically. So there was like five or six concrete buildings and we oh. just, yeah. You just kind of hung out there. There was really not a lot to do. So what does, so the the entire deployment, because you're there for several months, is it kind of just the same thing over and over? You are providing a lot of security in the villages or going out and talking to the locals and that eats up like all your months there? Or is there any change in what you're doing? Um, there wasn't a huge change in what we did. Um, sometimes things would get, you know, punctuated by an operation. So um you know, we're going to go clear these areas on the map and we're going to go uh, and we'll be there for like five or six days or maybe four or five days, whatever the time period mm. is. And and then we moved a few times, but the general premise or purpose of our deployment didn't change. Okay. Um, one thing I kind of wanted to touch on was uh, the leadership and management there. Like what's kind of your experience when you're there. Uh, how are you? How do you find the army? I guess implements that. And did you have any like really positive experience or really negative ones that you can remember? Where you know just lack of leadership, or or maybe somebody was actually really good, and um, you know everybody is like, I would fight to the death for that guy. Um, my experience is, is pretty limited because I went basically, I parachuted into this company for a cup of coffee and then I went to this other company. And then after the tour, that company actually got disbanded because it was only mm. stood up for the, the tour itself. Yeah. Um, but I, I really uh, thought highly of our company commander. I didn't necessarily think high, highly of our unit commander, like our, uh, the battalion commander, but our company commander I had a lot of respect for. Like he knew everybody's name. Um, he was always friendly. Like he wasn't above, you know, being a major, he wasn't above talking to privates and stuff like that. Like he seemed to kind of, um, to recognize the value in 
making everybody feel included or yeah. at least valued. Um, so yeah, I have a lot of lot of respect for him. Well, I think the same could be said around the police. It's just there's bosses who know what's going on and can talk to the guys on the front lines. And then there's people who you don't even know they exist. <laughs> yeah. They show up once a year and you're like, I didn't even know that's what you look like. Yeah. <laughs> I've just heard your name. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of lessons to be learned, I think. And a lot of the stuff from the military translates into the police and how we operate. It's a very similar world, right? Being paramilitary. But um, I think the, the function of what we do now uh, depends greatly on where we came from and, and kind of the rules, and the structure that we follow. Uh, see, there is a difference between management and leadership. I get into that in a lot of the other podcasts, but it's interesting to hear just how you're kind of saying like this person cared, right? Like, or at least gave the perception they cared yeah. enough that they knew names and would come down and talk to people. Like that's huge. Yeah. So, and even for a few years afterwards, he would send out emails to um, just to all of us just to see like how we were doing or, or um, you know, how things were. I've changed emails a few times since then. So I don't know, maybe still emails that I, um, I haven't got <laughs> like, them. Maybe he's retired now. Yeah. I, I don't know. But <laughs> so um, the other thing too is what's kind of your, your overall perception of like when you were on these deployments and you're going to these towns of just some of the, the locals and like how they react to you. Um, do you think like, was there something that could have been done differently or better uh, on like the Canadians part because and the reason I bring this up is before we started recording we were just kind of talking about the whole postal code issue here and how some people say uh, you know you know they're not from here you know cops are getting recruited from all over they're not from here so they're not invested in this community and um, do you think that has like a huge impact on whether whether you can provide, do your job, number one, and then provide some sort of caring or compassion to people, whether you're doing a specific humanitarian function or you're just, you're there to make sure there aren't people there to take over their village. So I think that, I think that actually comes down to the individual. I mm -hmm. think um, if you're a compassionate person, you'll be a compassionate person no matter where you are from and where you do your job. And if you're a true professional, um, that just carries through with you from where you start to where you end and what you do along the way. Um, I don't, I don't buy into the idea that just because you live in a different area doesn't mean you can't have an impact on um, an area outside of where you work. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, if you join for whatever employment for selfish, re selfish reasons, then um, I think that'll be evident in your work ethic, how you apply yourself, how you interact with people. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's necessarily um, you have to be there um, with a vested interest. I think you just have to have those qualities. And I mean, I don't know if there's a better approach to, to what we were trying to do there or... Um, if we could have done things differently, I, yeah, that's that's way I gotta spend like 
years trying to to, <laughs> to figure that out in my mind. So you'll put it in a book down the road. Maybe. Yeah, no one will read it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, maybe looking back though, do you think you're like now you're still involved in service? You're in the police. Do you think your reasons for why you got in have changed at all or, or continue to serve? Or um, maybe you just think it's more of a, a mature view of it? Um, there are a few reasons I left the military. And one of them was like, yeah, okay, I served my country. I went to this faraway place and um, I did, you know, I did my service to my country. I protected my country. But what does like that actually mean? Mm. Like, there's not a tangible. Um, there's nothing tangible about that. Not, no one can point to yeah, this person did that, and like it made all this difference in my life. Mm-hmm. And among one of the reasons to get out of the military was I felt like I had accomplished what I wanted to, um, but I still had this idea of like service and justice and. Like I wanted to make a, a difference that you can actually quantify, I guess. Yeah. Um, so policing seemed to be um, seemed to be one of the natural transitions, um, and probably the one that fit my skill set most. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I realize now it's not that similar. Um, but yeah, so that's one of the reasons police interest interested me because I can make a, a difference in a community that's quantifiable or, or like tangible you can, like I helped this person this family this community this by doing this yeah yeah so what do you think uh, kind of going forward um, what would you kind of say like if somebody wanted to get into military or police nowadays uh, and maybe I should have put this to you before in an email but I'm going to put you on the spot um, what would you kind of say to somebody now if they're looking at joining either one um not like whether they well I'll go here if you prefer this or that but just in in why you should join um would you have any kind of words of advice for a person oh yeah that's uh <laughs> it's getting hot here yeah <laughs> um i mean i i haven't been in the military for 10 years now and a lot of what was the focus when I was in is a lot different than it is now. And I think the focus in the last <laughs> year mm. is a lot different than it was maybe three years ago. Um, I mean, for sure, the army has the potential for a lot more adventure. Um, I got to see most of the country, more of the country than I would have probably chosen to see. Yeah. Um, I got to see different parts of the world that I definitely would not have got to see. Um, but the military... I don't know. It, it kind of lost its luster for me. Um, I just found it a little too repetitive, a little too mind-numbing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was looking for a different challenge. So, I mean, I think the military is great if you're looking to get, at least for me, I was looking to get a few specific things out of it. Um, and so it was great for me. It's really developed me into who I am as a person now. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I, I feel like I've done my duty as a Canadian. Um so the military can be really great if you're, if you have that mindset. If you, I guess, if you're looking for more than just the paycheck, because uh, you still can make a difference in the military. And, and you know, I would argue some of the training that we're providing to countries operationally um, 
is making a huge difference in yeah. some of those parts of the world right now. So yeah. um, you still get to make a difference, but you just might have to temper your expectation of what, it make, what making a difference is, or you might just have to, you know, be okay with the fact that you can't quantify the difference that you're making. And I, like I said, I was a little bit more interested in, in quantifying it. And policing, like, I don't know. That's again, that's why do you want to be a police officer and what's your end goal? Cause again, there's, there's a lot of cool things that we get to do. Um, there's a lot of experiences that you get to have. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of, um, <laughs> in the military, I got to see parts of Canada and parts of the world that um, I didn't, I knew existed, but like it didn't understand what that existence was. Yep. And for sure in policing, you get to see that within your own city. You get to see how people live. And I mean, I was floored that, some people are living not all that different than some people in Afghanistan here in our yeah. city, like without water, without, I mean, you know, the the population experiencing homelessness, like yeah. their lives are not all that dissimilar yeah. uh, in some aspects. Um, and I mean, policing's changed since I've, I've only been a member for 10 years. It's not a long time and it's changed huge. Mm-hmm. Um, again, like, yeah, you just have to, have the right mindset about about going in. Like you're not necessarily going to save the world and you're going to have to be accountable and you're going to be maybe fairly or unfairly scrutinized. So like mm-hmm. there's a lot of there's a lot of things uh to think about joining police now that maybe I didn't think about 10 years ago. Well, one of the I guess the big things the difference between military and, and police is one you're dealing with people who are not your own citizens. The other one is you're in your own backyard. So there's more accountability, more expectations for one, right? Um, talking to some of the military guys, I know it's like, well, your rifle is your first weapon, whereas here it's a pistol. Um, you walk around with your rifle slung and you're ready to go. Here, you're much more reactionary to a lot of things. Um, you don't get to just walk around with your guns out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so a lot of the time, everybody else gets to make the first move and you just hope that first move doesn't kill you. But um, yeah. And I guess talking about the, the having like something that you can actually touch or see taking that piece home with you uh, when it comes to the change. Yeah. The military, I guess you leave a lot of that stuff behind, right? You leave it overseas. Whereas here, maybe you keep in touch with somebody or, you know, whatever you fixed, you can drive by it every day and you you know you changed that or you did that. You had a part in it. But yeah, the military one is definitely a lot harder to bring home with you. So Yeah. And I know some people um had kept in touch with some of their interpreters. And mm-hmm. a lot of people I know did more than one tour. So I think if I had done another one, I would have been a little bit more alive to oh, like okay, like my eyes would have been wider. Yeah. And instead of, you know, looking through all my experiences through a pinhole, I would have probably had a little bit wider field of view and maybe taken in some of those things. But I think the age too might play into it. Like you, you just more life experience. You think of things differently. You see things differently. Like you're saying, you go back for a second tour. You're not as focused on maybe small things that are not as important. But when you're over there the first time, I could just imagine um, everything is like, wow <laughs> and it's a, a brand new experience so yeah but uh no i think kind of got through most of what we we're going to cover today and is there anything that you wanted to 
say or did I miss anything? No, I think that that pretty much covers awesome. covers the entirety of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate you coming in, and um, we'll uh, have these out and and get you a copy so you have some uh, a copy. And I hope people like this. I hope to get more members in. Um, so we'll have to kind of pick your brain about see about who we could get in here uh, to do more of these because mm-hmm. I think it's good. I think having people on to talk about their service, the people they dealt with, the things they've seen, how it's affected them and kind of like the impacts, uh, things you remember nowadays, even being 10 years out, like all that, the things you remember, right? That had an impact on you in some way. Uh, I think that's really important to kind of get that out there. And if you could get it recorded, well, now you have it for when you get, I don't know, uh, dementia later on and you can be like, oh yeah, I, I, forgot everything so (laughs) but yeah no thanks for coming on yeah thanks for having me